Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Today's episode is sponsored by Visible Alpha. Visible Alpha built a platform in partnership with 160 brokers to analyze consensus data and financial metrics on over 6,000 publicly traded companies globally. Visible Alpha extracts data from every line item across sell-side models so you can better understand expectations on metrics beyond just revenue and earnings without having to dig through models one by one. Try Visible Alpha for free by visiting visiblealpha.com slash TED. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, We'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting... Andy Golden interviews Alan Jean-Baptiste and Marco DiMorales of Ansa Capital. Andy is president of Princo, where he's overseen the management of Princeton University's endowment since 1995. Alongside his successful tenure, he is a master with wordplay and the use of the pun. Alan and Marco are the co-founders and general partners of Ansa Capital, a thesis-driven growth equity fund launched earlier this year with backing from an impressive list of LPs. Their conversation covers ANSA's long-term perspective, approach to partnerships, risk management, team dynamics, and operating model. Alan and Marco also share their perspective on current market conditions, the opportunity set, and raising their first fund. Please enjoy this manager meeting 
with Alan John Baptiste and Marco Di Morales of Onset Capital. Great to be with you, Alan and Marco. It's been too long. We're going to have a lot of fun getting the world to get to know you all a little bit better. You're among my favorites. Why don't we start out with you telling us all a little bit about yourselves and about Ansa? Thanks, Andy. I'm Alan John Baptiste, a co-founder of Ansa. I'm originally from Boston, and I'm the child of immigrants from Haiti. As the beneficiary of my parents' hard work, I was given a lot of opportunity growing up, from them figuring out how to get me into a top New England prep school to finding programs for me to learn classical music. It also meant that I was often in environments where I was distinctly different. And as a beneficiary of a lot of those doors being opened for me, it's really important to me to create space and opportunities for others. And that's why I've spent a lot of my time and career investing. After college, I joined Goldman's TMT banking team before moving to San Francisco to become an early member of the team at Capital G, Google's growth equity fund. While there, I invested in companies like CrowdStrike and Zscaler and learned two main things, how to find big ideas and how to use deep analysis for decision making. After Capital G, I joined KKR as a founding investor for their growth equity strategy. It was really interesting and a great experience. In addition to investing in companies like FanDuel, I also learned how to create infrastructure from how we source to how we hire to our investment processes. And for me, those experiences have been really helpful in launching Ansa. But that's probably plenty about me and my background. So Marco, why don't you share a little bit about yourself as well? Alan's always really tough to follow, but we do our best. I'm Marco Demorales, and like Alan, there's a lot of shared professional and personal experiences in my life. Also, first-generation American, child of immigrants. Our family actually settled a little bit down south in Queens, public school educated. And as my parents developed their own life, so did I grow with them. We spent most of my childhood in Long Island in a fairly idyllic setting. Being a child of immigrants teaches you a lot of things about life. It informs a lot of our worldview. But one in particular that's really core to what Al and I connect on is this dynamic of being comfortable in uncomfortable situations and finding ways to play above your weight and figure things out. That's been the core to us building Ansa in many ways. More professionally, over the last few years, prior to starting Ansa, I was a partner and a member of the investment committee at TCG, which evolved out of a holding company called The Churning Group, which I joined when it was actually a holding company. I joined to help build our first GPLP fund, stand up our office here in New York, build out our team and infrastructure here, push us into newer spaces and newer markets that historically weren't really focus areas of the firm. And so things that were outside of subscription media, for example, I learned a ton through that experience building on what I was doing in a prior life at a monthly strat hedge fund named BAM starting and building their venture and growth equity business. I got my start investing at a firm called TCV in Palo Alto, where Alan and I met. That's great. Do you want to talk about how you came together? So Mark and I have known each other for eight or nine years now. We first met as friends and competitors competing for deals during our junior years in venture out west. And then we really deepened our relationship through a fellowship that we did together about four years ago called the Kaufman Fellows. In Kaufman, it allows you to form a really strong sense of community and trust with the rest of your fellows. And through that, Marco and I were able to talk about our goals as investors and as people, but also the type of opportunities we saw in the market. And that's what we built Ansa to do. Yeah. And part of the question also ties to why now and where we are in our lives. We feel really fortunate to have been longtime friends, collaborators, competitors, and then thought partners 
But we were both at this point in our life where we had been investing for the better part of a decade and had a unique set of experiences where we were empowered to take real risk, building teams, building infrastructure and new strategies on other funds platforms. And that taught us a lot about both ourselves as investors and us as people, where we developed real clear sense of our game, so to speak. And we've always felt that you don't beat Tom Brady by playing Tom Brady's game. And for us, the way that we built our careers was by playing our own game. And Ansa takes that game and really productizes our style of investing in a very focused way. One of the things that impressed me and my colleagues with you from the get-go was when you were talking about founding a firm, you always had your eye on a prize of something that was really going to be enduring. This was a clear passion. And that's admirable in any moment, but in this day and age where there's some variant of the move fast, break things idea, tell me a little bit more about where that came from. Is there any life or investing lessons that drove you to think so long-term? One of my family's mottos is, it's better to roll down a hill than to walk up it. And that's one of the life lessons that we've used in building Ansa. It makes a lot more sense over the long term to put in the time and the energy to do things right the first time, no matter how difficult it is, because then from there, you can always roll down the hill. You're not always trying to walk back up it. That's really the approach we've taken from who we've raised money from, at what terms, where we invest, and even how we build our team. At times, it can feel like we're moving not as quickly as we can. But from our perspective, it's the right medium and long-term strategy to building something that lasts beyond ourselves. The goal for Ansa is not to build a firm for the next 10 years, but to build one for the next 30, 50 plus and really build a venture capital firm that can own the market. Our truth is that our life lessons are interwoven with our investing lessons and our firm building approach. And so when you think about our core values, one of the first ones is we play for each other. For us, that means even our partnership design. It's not just an equal partnership where we're obviously encouraged and incented to collaborate. It's this belief that at scale, we're going to compete five versus one. You'll get the full force of our entire team that's always and consistently played our game. And we're playing it in this market and building our product in a way where our partnership, we hope, has an unfair advantage over time, given the little things like that that go into our approach. Those are lessons that we've picked up from competing over the years in deals, but also how we grew our lives really as individuals and have made us better investors. You know, the word partnership is so important to us at Prinko. We think it is an unfair advantage in every activity. The best partnerships involve a good fit, not necessarily duplication, meaning that the partners are complementary to each other. How do you two fill the gaps for each other? Mark and I's individual styles are very complementary. It helps us get to the best outcomes and answers. Marco is pretty casual. He's a big picture type of guy, super creative, has really big ideas. My style is more bottoms up. I'm a builder. And I love to create a plan to achieve a goal. Those two styles actually resonate differently and can resonate well with different types of founders, LPs, and operators. And it's been a real strength, not just in finding great deals or convincing LPs like Prinko to back us, but also in just our decision making. Our goal is to build a culture of independent thinking. We think that's the way in which you reach the optimal conclusions. 
I think we both really respect that we approach problems differently. And at our core, we think in really complementary styles. Yeah, I also think when it comes to competing for the best entrepreneurs, what's incredibly additive is having somebody like Alan who will approach a problem in a way that really resonates with a different type of founder than the types that I would back. We think a lot about what axis do you compete on as well externally, in addition to how much value do you drive internally? And in many ways, it's an interchangeable analogy, but I feel like it's the motor and the steering wheel, and you really just need both to be in sync. It's not just good enough to have one. And for me, it's been really powerful having Alan as my core thought partner over these years in building Ansa. Motor and steering wheel. Funny, I thought you were both clutch players. (laughs) We aspire to be. (laughs) With one big obvious honking exception, you have an impressive roster of backers. What do you think those folks saw on you? There's a risk in backing a new firm. What do you think caused them to take that risk? It's a question we should be asking you, but we'll take a crack at answering it and you can help correct what we got wrong because we'd love to learn it. There's a couple things, at least reflecting on the process and how much work your team put in over what may be 14 months, including maybe as many meetings, as well as some in-person time and dinner and what have you and campus visits. I think over that course of those interactions, what I believe institutions like Printco came to see is that people really matter. And as you got to know us, you were able to identify our talents. And I think you built conviction over that time that it would be those characteristics and not to sell ourselves, but whether it's intelligence, hunger, youth, network, character, the drive to build a resilient, enduring business, those characteristics, whatever you found, were really core to what it takes to build a nascent firm. Related to that is having your partners really be receptive to feedback as they grow. And I'll never forget how you reframed our perceptions on emerging managers, taught us what it meant to be a nascent firm, educated us on how you all have grown and scaled alongside a number of great, what were once nascent firms. When Alan and I left that conversation, it just felt like, frankly, a really special partnership. And so I think we were mutually solving for that. I think you got most of it. What you haven't mentioned, something I broadcast a lot, is we look for an alignment of appetites. So it's something as fundamental as why do you want to do this? And that is manifest in things like, I want this firm to be enduring as opposed to I want to make a quick buck. Particularly in the venture space, it's kind of an easy throwaway. We want to work with people that we know that everyone who meets them is going to root for them because that's where you'll really get the force multiplication. I'm glad you had a good sense of what we were looking at, but it was that and more. Yes, and on that. But enough about us. Let's get back to you. Allegedly, your name means an opening or an opportunity. Tell me more about where this name comes from. The word is derived from the Latin word ants, which I believe means handle of a cup, as well as an opening or opportunity. We go back to the root and that meaning around an opening or opportunity really resonated because it describes what we look to do and how we're coming to market today. If we're looking at in terms of the opportunities, and you mentioned this described as a gap in the market, tell us about that gap and what is interesting to you about that gap? What gap are you trying to exploit? There are three at the core. The first is under covered and markets. If you look at how we built our track record, 
We were often working in TAMs, total addressable markets that didn't exist and weren't papered by a Gartner or an IDC research firm. There were no initiating coverage reports that detailed for a Wall Street analyst how big those markets were and how they were growing and the fundamentals underneath them. Consequently, they weren't consensus yet in many ways, and they weren't really owned and picked over, frankly, by large cap firms. And so when Alan and I, over the last decade, have grown to be leading investments, those were the markets that we gravitated towards, not just out of interest and seeing where the puck was going, so to speak, but also because of the white space around the table and our ability to own the mindshare of those entrepreneurs. And we feel that's a growing set of categories really as software continues to eat the world. The second part that is an opening for us that has become a little bit recognized today, but is core to how we invest is around the best outcomes tend to sit at the intersection of different business models. They're not just pure play, direct to consumer businesses. They'll have a stickier B2B component. They'll be monetizing payers and consumers. If it's a healthcare company, they'll have higher retention in certain regards. What we were seeing is most firms took a little bit of the easy way out and came to market with a narrow view on what they were going to do, because that's often the easiest thing to underwrite. So that's the first part on the undercover types of businesses. The second is around undercovered people. As we started, both Alan and I have always been the other in our lives. We look different. We feel different. Alan's black and I'm mixed and I married a female entrepreneur and grew up in a female household. And all of these little things shape us in unsaid and said ways. And when you looked at the types of entrepreneurs that we were finding and working with, it was winning the mindshare of people like Julia Cheek, who's the CEO of Everly Health, who I believe is one of the best CEOs of our generation and has built a very scaled nine figure plus top line business with great unit economics. But she had to go on Shark Tank to raise her first dollar. Those types of people are the people that we grew up with, we went to school with, we're in the communities with, and we over time have become phenomenal partners to and aspire to be the first call for. The last part is around the opening in the market. What Alan and I felt is twofold. The perception of venture being crowded has always existed as we've been building our careers. Five or seven years ago, it was, hey, SoftBank is raising the first $100 billion fund. That perception has existed. And what we've seen is it's become increasingly crowded at the extremes. On one end, you have these niche solo capitalists, people with day jobs who raise rolling funds on angels lists. And that's great. It's great for the ecosystem. And that's exploding. And then on the other hand, you have phenomenal strategies, but many of which have become five and six X in assets over a shorter amount of years. So they've left a part of the capital markets where partners, real partners and real owners are writing 10 to 20 to $30 million investments in emerging growth companies that are post-product, so post-seed, but pre-IVP, iconic, TCV, where it's a really unique part of that business's life cycle where you can influence the outcome, have a real piece of ownership. And we believe that we're best suited to do that. Within that fishing pond, are there any early trends or companies that you want to talk about? Opportunities? Try and get the rubber to meet the road. Tell me what's going on. What have you done for me lately, I guess is what I'm asking. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'd love to go into depth around a couple, but I'll start with one. One of the things that we've observed is our best investments lead us to the next frontier of our thesis work. If you back up a few years, I previously led an investment into a fertility business actually focused on the male factor. It came out of a bunch of work in and around healthcare, 
that started with the macro that we're in today about how rising out-of-pocket costs and this increase in gaps of care are forcing people, regular people and consumers, to buy healthcare like consumers at retail stores for the first time, largely because of the cost-to-value delta, but also because of the fact that despite the highest per capita spend globally in the U.S., the healthcare outcomes here are far below developed country peers. We've noticed a few gaps in care, including in fertility and family planning. I was particularly exposed to it for many reasons, as were people in my partnership. But what it led us to was this idea that men are to blame in almost 50% of the cases, but because of the paternalistic nature of the last thousands of years, nobody has recognized it and built a solution that helps men be better partners in this process. I backed a company here in Brooklyn called Daddy. At the time, the company was six people, no office, a couple hundred thousand in revenue. We scaled that to many multiples more and sold it, I believe, for what's publicly reported to be a nine-figure outcome. One of the things that whole experience showed was how many actual categories of diseases are mischaracterized as misgendered. If you start looking at other psychosomatic consumer issues like anorexia and bulimia, there definitely aren't any public comps in that market that are pure play businesses there. It's a real problem that affects millions of Americans. It's incredibly stigmatized. So often people aren't actually seeking help, which makes it ripe for telehealth and newer age solutions. The challenge is what's the right approach in that space? And so we've done a lot of work in and around that market to start building conviction in a company that we haven't invested in yet, but we're incredibly excited about. I hope that gives you an idea of how we think and the way we look at the world. Why is it that there aren't more folks exploring these areas, do you think? There are a lot of reasons. There aren't as many, especially established firms, exploring a lot of these areas. For one thing, as you grow your firm, you just start to silo your people. So instead of being more of a generalist or covering multiple sectors, you start to cover very specific end markets and within those end markets, even more specific subsectors. And given one of our theses is that the next generation of great businesses is at the intersection of multiple sectors and multiple business models, it gets really difficult to figure out who covers what, but also even to identify what to bring in because it doesn't really fit within your individual small area of focus. In addition to that, it's structural. For these new markets and distribution models where we spend our time focused, there aren't research reports, there's no Gartner report, there's no public comps, there aren't even really good private benchmarks for them since the markets are coming online. And when you think about the structuring of traditional firms, it tends to be that the most junior people are doing a lot of the sourcing, developing a lot of the theses, having those initial conversations and building a point of view. But the investment committee and the people making the decision are a completely different crop of individuals at that firm. So it's really difficult to build conviction and build conviction early when you don't have benchmarks and you don't have research reports and you're not the one who's actually doing the direct work, being close to the nuances of the individual market or a set of companies. And that's why our approach is to do GP-led thesis work in very specific spaces and to build deep theses. So we're not running around chasing every idea, but we're chasing the theses where we feel like we have deep conviction and knowledge. And that allows us to be more competitive, to move faster and develop conviction in these areas where other people aren't able to say yes, which is one of the most important things that you can do identifying something early and saying yes to investing before everyone else. 
there's a lot of appeal to hitting them where they ain't, so to speak, to be doing something that others aren't doing. That lack of competition tends to lead to a lot of good things if you can have the courage to do that. It's a little lonely being alone sometimes. And you've got to ask yourself, are they seeing some risks that we're not? Or is there a certain type of work that needs to be done that we don't think is worth it? Focusing on the risk aspect of it, how do you get comfortable in managing the risks that would at least appear to be in play when you're in less competitive areas? I mentioned before that I love to have a plan. The way in which we balance risk is by having a really structured approach to developing that conviction and building those deep areas of knowledge. So the first thing we do is that we invest a ton of time into speaking with experts, speaking with incumbents, talking to employees, even speaking to companies that are way past our stage of investment and things that are tangentially related to where we're thinking of investing. From there, we spend a lot of time trying to understand the potential market sizes for these business models, the end customers, the geographies, And that can be really difficult and take a lot of time because the markets often don't even exist yet. And so it requires a pretty data-oriented approach and a highly analytical approach to start to build that degree of understanding of the competitive landscape and the opportunity within a specific market. From there, what we do is we build company-specific work streams for diligence. This is way in advance of when we think there might be a financing And we're building these work streams to understand why is this company the best suited to win? In addition to, will this market still exist 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now? And how do we start to use our network of operators and executives to start to reduce our risk of investment? Are there companies we can introduce them to for potential customers? Can we source new individuals to go work there or become executives and start to have a better sense for where is the company today? What can we understand about it? How do we look around corners to understand where there will be risks? And what can we do to mitigate them now? From all of that, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of resources. So we want to use that to drive really large returns on our overall time and investment. So that's why we're building a portfolio that is pretty differentiated for traditional venture. We're building a concentrated portfolio. We want Fund One to be about a dozen companies because for all that time and for all that effort and research and thesis building, we want to invest deeply behind where we have conviction. You use the first person plural we in some of that. I really want to understand what goes on when you all don't initially agree on an investment. How do you build consensus among you? We're a non-consensus culture. So you don't need both Marco and I to be screaming from the rooftops that it's the best thing to ever come to market. But we have a deep respect for each other's intellect and way of thinking and experience. As we're going through a process, we do a couple of things. First, for the second or third meeting, I would set Marco up with the founding team so that he can have conversations with them on his own, even without me there, where he can kind of play dumb a bit, ask the questions that he wants to get across and starts to form his own view. In addition to that, as we're going through each meeting and doing our work, the way in which we do check-ins is not just talking through, here are the open areas of diligence and this is what I've learned, but also starting to take reads of everyone's temperature. We like to use a scale, one to nine, can't vote five. And that gives you a really good indication of how your partner and the rest of the team are feeling about an individual deal. By the time you get to making an actual investment, you're asking the same one to nine, can't vote five. And so if I'm leading a deal and I'm very close to it, I might be a nine. But if Marco's a two, 
I should really pause, stop and think and figure out what is causing him to still feel that way after we've gone through all this work, after I've shared my findings and perspectives and really figure out whether or not that is the type of deal that we want to do next. We don't all have to be perfectly aligned on each individual deal being a home run, but we respect and want to preserve the sanctity of our partnership. And that's what's most important. When you do get to the point where you want to go ahead with something, whether it's classic consensus or enough respectful engagement that you feel empowered to move ahead, how then do you compete to win the deal? How do you woo and win the hearts of the entrepreneur? A lot of it comes down to a couple things. One is our approach. The benefit of focus, Alan always says internally, focus on focus. And now I brought it home and I find myself telling my one-year-old that. But it gets back to this approach. On day one, before even the first meeting, we come in with a view. We know that we need to do that to build and own the mindshare of the entrepreneur. Early in our own processes, we are building deep thesis-driven work that helps us identify both those businesses and catalyzes an earlier relationship. So while we're not in the business of incubation or seed, there is mutual respect and alignment on where the world is moving with the companies we choose to work with because of that foundational relationship. And prior to a financing, prior to saying yes and communicating that, we're building a company-specific roadmap, often alongside management in parallel with some of their work, that looks to catalyze where we think we can be great collaborative partners. Often that's around people, capital, and specific things and operations. But we use those conversations to try to catalyze a financing, to try to avoid, quote-unquote, process. The best way to win a process is often for us to avoid the process. That's a key area of the way that we compete, and we earn that right through the work. One thing that I think we were really fortunate about in, in our careers has been, if you look at the end markets that we've worked in, whether it's cybersecurity and enterprise infrastructure, crypto and fintech more broadly, consumer internet globally, because the teams that we were a part of have been a part of some of the best outcomes in the spaces. If you're building a connected hardware business that has a high value subscription, Peloton is the gold standard, regardless of what else is in the market. And we use those cards, not often, but strategically to our advantage, given we're part of a rare pool of people who have worked with companies like that. And I could go on, but if you think about companies within enterprise security, I can't think of better outcomes in our business than CrowdStrike, Zscaler, and many of the businesses that Alan served and worked alongside. Those relationships have led us to see the next generation of those companies and win the hearts and minds of the next generation of those entrepreneurs. The other thing I'd mention is really around support. And we have been really intentional in building a differentiated type of support for our founders. In starting Onsa, given we took the time to build the foundation right, one of the first things we did was survey founders about what it was like working with the VC, what worked, what didn't. And what we kept hearing was you couldn't really get operating support. You can't get people on the line quickly. Different VC advisors' information is really dated because... They came in-house to the VC three years ago, and now there's a new channel for marketing, or even because they're not in the day-to-day -day execution of some of these ideas and strategies. What we realized was a lot of VC networks overpromised. They're people with large cachets who sound great on a page, but don't really have time or aren't even accessible for your $10 million investment. 
what we thought to do was to productize the networks of people who we have been working with to put together a group that are kind of like a elite task force of tactical operators that are there to solve your growth challenges. It's everyone from next generation of operators in engineering and product and data and sales and marketing and legal and finance. And these are actually the people who lead the teams. They're the people who develop the strategy. They do the work at top public and private tech companies. And they have real world recent experience in pushing through those scaling challenges. We've put this group together. It's now about 35. There's a great list of others who are trying to get into the Onsen Network as well. And we're really excited about them. They're the next generation of great leaders. They're already doing it today. Maybe not with the cachet of some of the people that are a little bit more well-known in tech, but they're a year or two away from being that themselves. The other area where we looked at value is really around hiring. Finding the next great talent for your team is incredibly important. And this group of operators is also an incredible group to pull from for things like independent advisors, board directors, and obviously potential hires for your executive teams. And what we're proud of is these are a really diverse group of operators, majority women, majority ethnically diverse, not because we went into LinkedIn and said black executive in sales and marketing, but because we went to school with these people. We see these people on the weekends. We invested behind them. That's been a really great way for us to add differentiated value. And actually, two of them we've already placed into companies. So it's bi-directionally valuable, both for the operators in our network, as well as ANSA and our companies. And it's something that really helps us compete differently by bringing different types of talent to the forefront for our portfolio. That's great. Every time I hear the story, I want to give you some money. (laughs) You can always give us some more, Andy. Theoretically, you're correct. (laughs) But that actually brings me to a little bit of a challenging question. You're just a year into it, and the world seems to have changed, at least for the time being, and maybe for more than just the time being, a good bit. So these current market conditions, are they causing you to modify your approach at all, or how are they causing you to modify your approach? We're really excited because this is a great time to be launching a new firm. Our approach of being thesis-driven hasn't changed. We are trying to be aggressive in these new markets. What has always been difficult is that transition from early venture to early growth for businesses. And I think that we have pretty differentiated experience and skills, not just at supporting companies at Series B, but C, D, E through IPO and beyond, but also really what later stage investors are looking for in companies and the level of depth and sophistication in which they underwrite because we've led and done those deals as well. So I think, if anything, our experience and the platform we're building of supporting companies moving from early venture to early growth is only becoming increasingly strategic to founders. We're excited for this fund one. We're actively looking for new investments. We're not sitting on the sideline waiting for things to settle down. And we're deploying capital. So we're going to continue to focus on finding new investments, supporting them, and hopefully finding the next great market leaders. Just to tack on to that. I think a lot about timing and again, how fortunate we are in so many ways. But in this case, we talk to our peers and there's the dynamic around having businesses in their funds that have uh, high watermarks from 2020, 2021, even at the start of this year, that will take years potentially to grow through if they can grow through it. And the beauty of not having that distraction And for us, having that ability to focus and have purity of thought 
is really powerful in terms of letting us make the most of this moment and dislocation. The other thing that hasn't changed is at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're doing our best to figure out within this market, if we're right on demand, how growth compounds leadership and the efficiency of the unit economics. What's the long-term free cash flow yield of that business over time? The core fundamentals that we think about and our lens based on our experiences and how we grew up in this business tends to be a little bit different. And that anchors us in what we underwrite. That asymmetric risk reward is still there. And frankly, in certain cases, it's not as competitive because there are just less funds playing offense. Times like these do create opportunities if you're well positioned to exploit them. So very exciting. Looking back over the course of this first year, I would think you would be proud of just about everything you've done, but is there anything that you're particularly proud of? We're always thinking about what could we get better at. I think Alan <laughs> and I are wired that way, so it's nice to hear. I think we should both share one. And for me, the quality of the people that we've surrounded ourselves with has made this journey, this labor of love, this foundation so rewarding. It's you, but it's your team. It's so many people in our lives and our communities that have come out for us. It's the people in both Alan and I's respective lives who have opened up their networks and we've grown through each other. That's really special. And I think what we have done a good job of is there's not a lot of things you can control in our business in minority investing. There's a couple that you can try. Who you take money from, who you give money to, and who you hire are closer to those things that you can control. For Al and I, I'm particularly proud of the job we've done there and how we've started to build and grow our team and the foundation we've set. Yeah, I would say there's a lot that I'm proud of in our first year. And as Marco mentioned, a lot that we're excited to keep working on. But I'm most proud of the culture that we're building. We've been really intentional with setting that up. It's really a culture that supports new ideas and intellectual independence while still being rooted in the level of rigor and collaboration that we're both really used to. I'm proud that we're doing a good job with our culture and that we're having a lot of fun as we do this as well. It can be tiring and it's a lot of work starting a new fund, but we've had a really good time doing it so far. And I'm sure we will for the next 30 years as well. I got to ask, those elements that you ticked off in culture, if those are truly in play, then it's highly likely that you have had some important disagreements, maybe intense disagreements, arguments, if you will. Just pretend there's no one else listening, just the three of us. Tell me about your most interesting argument that you've had recently. We're both pretty principled <laughs> with a point of view, and so it's common for us to push and challenge each other. One of our most interesting arguments, at least for me, was really around our office, actually. <laughs> what is the role and purpose of an office? So we're looking for a new office space. And honestly, I'm cheap. In my mind, I'm like, is there a roof? Check. Is there a toilet? Check. Is there a door? Amazing. This is a great office. <laughs> we're going to do great here. Let's sign a lease. Marco had a really specific view on using the office to build community. How do we bring our portfolio and our operators and our LPs together, even when they're just in New York or for events? How do we leverage our office as a tool for what we're trying to build? So at first, I was probably pretty hard-headed around how much we should invest in it, what we really need in our fund one. And we had to have pretty open conversations that got back to the core of what is the actual purpose of the office? And Marco made some really great points around our needing things more than just a roof. And we found a way to meet in the middle. 
in all of these things, we're making investments and all of them have opportunity costs. You have to decide where you're making those deeper investments. That was probably one of our most recent arguments. And Marco did a good job of helping me to think a little bit more expansively into how we could use an office as a tool. Yeah, I think the key in these is always protecting the relationship, disagreeing and challenging each other in the right way and thinking long term. What both of us have is that mindset and that culture and way of operating. And for us, it makes us better. There's a dynamic of sharpening iron, even the quality of ideas and the derivative ideas and the bank shots that come off of those types of discussions when you do challenge each other productively. It's really great. Amen to that. We've been talking about the two of you coming together in a new firm and trying to go after new types of investments. New, 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 new. Let me speak my own book, which is old. I'm old. (laughs) So I want to hear about some old things, like is there an old habit or old hobby we might find surprising, but which would help understand you all better? There's a bunch. I think both of us are actually onions where you kind of got to peel back the layers a bit. But Am I going to cry? Yeah, I, I, think, I think this may scare you. So I went to Williams. It was one of the best experiences of my life. There's a lot I picked up around that community, but one of the things that intrigued me was the Chapin Library, which is their rare book collection. In the early 1900s, they were deeded thousands of rare books. And I built this passion for collecting them because at first it started out like I couldn't really afford the art that I wanted. Let me find my next type of art. And I'd go around the Berkshires picking things up. My wife thinks of it as hoarding, where I am now assembling what I think of as a really special time capsule of knowledge, to your point on old, these are books that are out of print, you can't buy them on Amazon, and they really provide a lens in a high fidelity way because they're from the period of the time and society and topics that they hit on. I keep collecting, and it's something that I hope to do with our kids too. Alan, how about you? Given my background and family, one thing I've loved to do for a long time is actually ski it. No one in my family likes the cold being from the Caribbean. I also hate being cold, but it's something that I taught myself growing up in Boston. Originally skiing in blue jeans and leather gloves because no one knew any better and teaching myself how to not fall on the icy slope so I wouldn't freeze to death. To today when our first team offsite was actually a ski trip. It was a really great way to just bond over shared experiences. I'm an avid skier. If anyone wants to go on a ski trip, let me know. It's one of the best ways for me, at least, to be completely focused on just one thing. And in many ways, that's really freeing. You got to make sure you don't crash into a tree or fall down the hill or find some other way to hurt yourself. That's what I like to do in my free time. I can certainly identify with activities that you have to focus on as being very freeing, particularly activities where there's some risk of injury. (laughs) For me, that's shark wrestling, but I haven't done that as much as I used to. Is there any question I should have asked you? I think you did a pretty good job, Andy. Maybe we can ask you a question. Go ahead, if you must. Why don't you give us one old hobby or habit of yours that people don't know? You know, the problem is that people do know. So much of my life was about photography. And in fact, I had my first career as a photographer. Would that surprise people? I don't know. But particularly in the old days in film, when you would spend time in the darkroom and you really had to figure things out for yourself and figure out whether or not you liked it and be less concerned about whether or not someone else liked your work, but still wanting a little bit for someone else to like your work. I think that's been pretty formative. Well, now we know where to go for all of our new team members when they need headshots. We'll be right on campus knocking on your door, Andy. (laughs) I think you'll have to examine the work to see 
if that's really what you want the headshots to look like. No one ever said they were classic, realistic portrayals, but, <laughs> but do. I ask all of you to follow me on my Instagram account, sparky underscore golden, and you'll get a better sense of where I'm coming from. Thank you so much, Eddie, for making the time to do this. No, thank you. It's fun. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time.